How do the best data scientists in the world master their data sets, train their models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. You can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. At that time, I said, and I want people to hear this, that you have worth and you have skills and there's someone who needs that somewhere. Hello and welcome everyone once again to another episode of the Towards Data Science Podcast. My name is Jeremy and I'm on the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. And we're here today to talk about project building, which is the single most important activity you can get up to if you're trying to keep your machine learning skills sharp or break into data science. The thing is though, even the best project won't do you much good unless you can show it off effectively and get feedback to iterate on it. And until recently, there weren't really that many places you could turn to to do that. I mean, sure, if you can handle a deluge of vicious online abuse, you could always post it to Hacker News or Reddit. Or if you wanted a shot at 15 microseconds of project fame, you could also share it on Twitter, only to have it disappear on you. But in most cases, those options don't quite scratch the itch. Now, a recently open source initiative called Made with ML is trying to change all that by creating an easily shareable repository of crowdsourced data science and machine learning projects. And its founder, former Apple ML researcher and startup founder Goku Mohandas, is sitting down with us for today's episode of the podcast. So we've got lots to talk about when it comes to projects, his experiences doing research in industry at Apple and so on, as well as the Made With ML project itself. Um, so let's just get right into it. Goku, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me. Well, really, really happy to have you here. Um, you started your career as a kind of, I guess, biomedical research data scientist, and you've since had a lot of different NLP-focused research roles at various companies, including Apple, actually, uh, which, of course, is somewhat somewhat insular, somewhat secretive in, in different ways. So maybe we can get into what that environment was like. Uh, but maybe we can start at the beginning. What was it like doing this professional ML research work that you did at these these different labs and companies? Yeah, no. Uh, so I think to start off, uh, I wanted to say that, you know, I didn't have that traditional computer science background. Uh, so I started with, uh, I was always been interested in health. So I, I went to uh, Hopkins to do my undergrad and my focus there was in chemical and biomolecular engineering. And um, I think, you know, if you had to summarize it, all of my experience at Hopkins was that core wet lab research. And I really got to know the health space uh, sort of isolated from the code aspect and, and engineering, right? So, you know, how do, how do clinicians work with things? How do these wet lab researchers work with uh, things like nanomaterials, things like that? So I did a, a lot of my research focused on the wet lab side of things. Uh, and to put it into perspective, the language of choice that I, I really didn't have actually much choice was MATLAB, right? Uh, so I uh, didn't even know about Python. Thinking back now, I think I could probably could have cut off 80% of my development time yeah. if I knew something like Python. Um, but I my specific area of research there was on, uh, you know, trying to devise uh, special compositions of nanomaterials for targeted drug delivery. And we did a lot of you know, things and looking back, you know, it had I used Python and, you know, this was 2012, 2013. So things like, you know, AlexNet was already out. Uh, there was quite a bit of work. Uh, Theano was, it was an available framework. So 
there are a lot of these avenues looking back that I could have used ML to try to uh, optimize or at least save a little bit of time instead of doing a lot of manual testing. Um, so I think uh, I did have a good foundation, but it was more on the actual industry side. Now going into uh, my master's, this is where, you know, by this time, you know, 2014, 2015, uh, ML really started to pick up, mostly due to the introduction of uh, frameworks like TensorFlow. So TensorFlow came out, I think, end of 2015. And now, um, you know, not only were the research but research folks interested, people who were, you know, generally computer scientists or not even uh, started becoming interested in machine learning because now you have this this medium to, to develop things very quickly, right? Um, it, it, TensorFlow has improved big time in industry. Now there's PyTorch and, and several other frameworks, but at that time it, it was fantastic. It, it, it was um, it was great to have that uh, very easy framework to work you're with. You're not so, coding up uh, backpropagation from scratch anymore. Exactly, right? Um, so once that came out, I started to tinker around with machine learning. And now that I had this uh, you know, health background isolated from coding, uh, from from computer science, I was able to really think about how how are different things done currently, and then what aspects of it makes sense to use uh, machine learning in, right? So, um, it's in, I think it's good to have this kind of background in in an industry because you're not looking for nails to hit. You already know which are the the nails that need to be addressed, right? So, uh, I I think I would suggest that to any anyone. You know, when you're focusing on a niche, try to really understand that niche first. Uh, instead of trying to apply these this tool set that you already have, right? So that's so that's so interesting. Sorry, because I I totally misinterpreted your background. I thought that your so I thought your undergrad was actually kind of focused more on the machine learning side or, or the not to call it technical side. Wet lab stuff obviously is a different kind of technical. But mm -hmm. yeah, this is I think this is a really interesting story, particularly because so many people like I've heard it so many times from people who say, you know, I've got this background in biology or I've got this background in chemistry. And I mm -hmm. just like I don't know if I can do the data science thing. I don't know if I can learn how to learn, you know, or learn machine learning or whatever. Was that a challenge for you as you were transitioning into that master's and starting to get more and more kind of coding technical? Uh, you know, it 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 I'd say it was and wasn't. It was a challenge mainly because there aren't as many resources as there are now. Um, but it also wasn't because, you know, for the specific niche area that I was focusing on, there wasn't a lot of uh, groundwork laid out. So even my first couple ideas would be kind of uh, very novel because a lot of people haven't right. haven't tools and applied them to these niche areas yet, right? But now, you know, the the industry itself has started to get a little bit more saturated. So uh, you need to think a little bit more, but there are a lot of resources now, so you can get started very quickly. So, um, yeah, I think there's pros and cons to you know doing ML back then versus now. Uh, doable in both stages, but yeah, certainly different pros and cons. Um, also, Jeremy, you brought up a good point. I, I did want to say, you know, there's I, I've heard that too uh, from a lot of people who said, you know, I have a background in X, which is non-technical or not related to computer science. You know, how can I do this? How can I get into this? And I think that's actually a huge pro because uh, I tell every everyone uh, that I meet these, including I have a little brother, it's okay if you major in computer science, you know, you go ahead and do that. But I strongly advise either you do a double major with some of some other uh, niche focus that's not computer science, or don't do computer science as a major at all because yep. because there are so many free resources, you can learn it on the side, and you will need to learn it on the side. Uh, for and, it, and this list is growing, but for so many different industries. So why not focus on the actual industry that you want to make an impact on 
and then use computer science as a tool, not not an industry itself, right? Um, and of course, there, there's always room for, you know, there's a lot of great computer science researchers who are trying to push that field. For them, of course, that's, that is your niche focus, so focus on that. But for uh, everyone else, you know, definitely major in something else. And if you haven't majored in computer science, that's perfectly all right. It's 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 a tool that you can pick up to to really um, augment what you're doing in your current field. So uh, yeah, definitely would. I think it's a pro to be honest. Um, I, that makes perfect sense to me, and I, I think that I think that's sort of been in a way a change over the last few years. As I mean, like fundamentally to solve or to do good data science, there are sort of two steps to the process. Like you have to be good at solving the problem, but then you also have to be good at identifying the problem. You kind of, you hinted at that when you said, you know, I, I knew I had a whole bunch of really good ideas off the bat because I was specialized in the wet lab environment. I knew the, the problem space and all that and, and what problems are worth solving. I think it, it kind of feels like to your point, the, the field has gradually evolved to where there was so much low hanging fruit back in the day that you could actually pretend that data science was a technical problem. Whereas now it's sort of becoming a, a technical product and business problem all at the same time. Do you think that is that fair to say? Uh, you nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and, and yeah, right now, if you if you don't actually solve the problems that need to be solved, your work goes unnoticed because uh, you, know, you may get a few applauses the moment you launch, you release it or whatever. But for to have actual long term impact, you need to you need to basically solve something that the people in that industry care about. So. To do that, you really need to to understand that industry. So, um, absolutely, I think having that focus uh, is good for all project work that you do, and, and it's just good in, in general in terms of the projects that you're working on. So, um, so yeah, going back to Georgia Tech. Uh, so I did. It was a relatively new program, but it was it was a combination of uh, you know machine learning and computer science, um, and I learned a lot of uh, R actually. So R was the, the predominant. Uh, language that's taught there and it was great to learn you know stat fundamentals and are there but um i think this is still the case with a lot of universities the it's uh, it's slightly outdated you know you you learn all the fundamentals it's fantastic you absolutely need to learn the fundamentals but then huge disconnect when we actually tried to get jobs in the industry because industry uh you know very few use r everyone's almost uh, in python and then you know some of the production ones are in uh, lower level languages but, and also for industry, it's not just enough to have that stats foundation. You, you, you need to be up to date with a lot of cutting edge stuff. So I found myself, you know, I realized that sort of uh, end of my first semester there. And that summer, you know, I started focusing on uh, some of the new classes that were coming out. I think that was the first year when CS231 came out with Andre Karpathy. And I, uh, so I, I, there was a lot of self-learning that I had to do um, outside of class. And I think that's still the case because you know, now, you know, a lot of universities are starting to teach deep learning, but for in, in industry, they're starting to apply cutting edge research already. So you need to do that outside of your time uh, and keep up with that. So it's uh, it's definitely, there, there's you have to do your due diligence when you're at a university program or even, even like a boot camp program, right? They will get you foundations, but you need to put in the effort and time to, to keep up with what's going on. And almost inevitably, I, ma I imagine, you know, when you're looking at a university implicitly, there's a four-year time horizon on your on your studies, and so even if the curriculum is blazing hot, cutting edge, the day you come in, I mean, thinking back four years, like man, I don't even know if like I, TensorFlow barely existed. Um, you know, we're, we're still like I don't even know if if, um, if Spark existed. Way more people or PySpark that is, or 
you know, XG boost, all that stuff, all these things that we take for granted now as like bread and butter things just weren't around. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, uh, yeah, things get outdated very quickly here. So uh, you do need to keep keep on top of things. But I will say uh, you don't, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. And going back to our, our niche focus point, if you're able to pick that niche earlier on, then the things that you need to be accountable for, that, that amount uh, shrinks, right? So if you know what industry you're focused on, then you can start to stay on top of the cutting edge stuff, you know, research and applied research for that specific industry. So that um, I would say, you know, start definitely start specializing earlier on, finding your interest earlier on. So then, uh, you know, if you if you try to keep up with every single thing that gets likes on Twitter and Reddit, uh, yeah. that that's just gonna that's gonna make you insane, right? There's so much happening every day. So yeah, you, you got to restrict your parameter space somehow. Yeah, 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 absolutely, right? So, um, so that yeah, I had, but overall, you know, I had a great time at grad school. I, I would say I learned more outside of class than in class. Uh, mostly from the opportunities at university. So, you know, definitely do competitions, do hackathons, um, do, uh, you know, meet a lot of people at data science communities and things like that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I had something like Sharpest Minds because, uh, you know, having that mentor who's already done it before, that is probably the most valuable thing you, you can ask for. You know, they've, they've gone through this path. They, they know what you should spend your time on, what you shouldn't. Uh, that's that's going to save you more time than anything else. So, oh, actually, yeah. Sorry, I, I should mention because I think this is a. It's just really a funny coincidence. Yeah, Goku, you happen to be a, a mentor on Sharpest Minds. Like, you know, I always mention I'm from Sharpest Minds at the beginning of these calls. So this is actually kind of a bit of a coincidence. So I hadn't connected the dots there. That's a good point. People might not be aware of that. Yeah, actually, I I do have to mention it's so it's it's a lot of fun to actually. I know a lot of people do courses. You know, YouTube video courses, paid free courses. But it, it's it's very different when you're mentoring just one person at a time. You get to uh, it, it's kind of like it's it, it's also like a partnership, right? You get you work on a project together, uh, you go through an experience with them, and, and watching just one person learn very surreal. So I, I recommend anyone that's you know in the data science industry that uh, has had success has a career definitely check out Sharpest Minds because uh, it's a it's a, it's a rewarding experience for both sides. I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the plug. <laughs> Thanks. It, well, actually, on the mentorship side of things, because one of the things that that I remember from grad school was the um, the importance of having good guidance, especially when it comes to research, which is so open ended. You know, the the space of possibilities is so huge, and and by definition, no one really knows what they're doing when they begin. And so, was this something that you found, like when you did your your industry level research work, or was it more or less sort of like you're off on your own doing your own thing? No. So, uh, actually, industry level research, which I like to call applied research, is very focused on uh, the bottom line, right? So, you spend a lot of time trying to understand what exactly the problem you're trying to solve is, uh, and then you 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 spend time trying to think of the solution without any constraints. So you forget about all the tools that you have, you forget about all the constraints, and you just think about the best solution. And then you start to factor in the constraints, the technologies that you have. And the first question that we ask in industry-level research is ML even needed, right? Uh, and, and for research, that's not true. It's, I have ML, I, you know, my lab specializes in this area of ML. How can we use this to achieve soda on this data set and this data set? Uh, in, in applied research, it's flipped. It's do I even need ML? And if and then if the answer is really yes, then you start to get into the sort of uh, you know outlining the objectives, 
uh, trying to see what are the components needed, latency, interpretability, uh, and then slowly iterate towards something. It's a, they're both long processes, research and applied research, but uh, definitely different focuses. And you can't say, I'm not gonna solve this problem because ML, <laughs> right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, very much uh, uh, bottom line driven, uh, and you know, bottom lines are different for different uh, you know, different industries and, and different uh, problems you're trying to solve. But yeah, I think uh, different motivations for sure. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned the constraint side of things because I think for a lot of people who are diving into machine learning at first, like one of the most common things that I'll tend to see is like this. I mean, I, I can't help but call it something like a mistake. I mean, it, this this mistake of treating your uh, data science projects as these open-ended things where you kind of you grab a data set and then you explore it and then you you build your model and then you can always keep fine-tuning and you know building more complicated model ensembles and neural networks and that and and like if you don't have the constraints like clear constraints in mind like I'm gonna spend you know three weeks on this project and I'm gonna make the compromises that go into spending three weeks on this project so that I, I have to compromise on like, okay, this accuracy is good enough or this performance threshold is good enough, um, which in a way are, are the decisions that are mirrored in a production setting. Like these are the real decisions that people have to make and that presumably hiring managers care about too. But in, in research, it's funny how in a way you revert back to that mentality of no, like I'm trying to optimize this free of a lot of those constraints. I mean, obviously there there's some with compute and whatnot, but uh, no, absolutely. Very different uh, objective functions, right? So, uh, it's it's true. Uh, it's you shouldn't actually in a lot of uh, applied research that I did at Apple, the the end performance, even the performance on your test set, that that's not the the thing. Even in the top three uh, things that metrics that they care about, uh, depending on the the sensitivity of the task, the the number one thing, honestly, a lot of times could be compute. You know, if it's something that has to run on device. Uh, you know, there's no way we're, we're going to have large amounts of compute available. So that that's a big constraint. Uh, another constraint is interpretability. So if it's something that's low latency where someone, uh, you know, let's say it's an internal product where someone can actually look at every single output and then look at why the model said something, that becomes a huge uh, factor. So even if, you know, the performance of two different models, the one that has better interpretability uh, has, let's say, 10% lower precision or something, that's always going to be preferred. Um, you know, uh, anything that sort of fits in the decision loop, performance, mediocre performance with great interpretability outweighs uh, to model. So yeah, I think, uh, yeah, definitely different objective functions um, on what you're working on. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Apple, and I, I think that's just such an interesting case because obviously Apple is just a, an amazing company with world-class hardware and software people, research people in general. Um, but for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, Apple is sort of known for having a pretty insular, somewhat arguably secretive culture. And I've, I've heard stories from friends about the challenges of, in some cases, cross-team collaboration that arises as a result because people are relatively siloed trying to keep their, their own work under wraps. Is that something that you encountered? And, and were there any ways that maybe that created some challenges from the standpoint of executing on data science or machine learning projects inside Apple? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I can offer sort of my views, uh, my experience when I started. So um, I started there uh, 2016. And at this time, you know, the industry giants when it came to applied machine learning were Google, Facebook, uh, and, and even some of the smaller companies at that time, right? Uh, 
Microsoft, uh, one of the other big companies. But Apple, uh, I think you, if you read all the news articles from back then, you know, Apple, there was Apple's lagging, things like that. So I think they realized that, you know, to to attract the great talent, the great PhD talent, master's undergrad talent to come to Apple to work on machine learning, you can't have silos because these people are researchers. They they're, they want to put out, publish their work. That's what they've been doing. So if you try to put them in this new environment where everything they work, everything they work on is under wraps, it's not really going to work. So um, I, I'm sure you remember this. I, I keep forgetting which conferences it was, but maybe ICLR when Apple had its first uh, paper released. Um, you know, and that was that was the big news. And then we uh, hired folks like uh, John G. Andrea from Google, uh, uh, Ian Goodfellow. So all these research folks started coming in. And I think to summarize, I would say there's there's two kinds of uh, ML work that happens at Apple. So there's there's this core research, which happens to be in a lot of the computer vision areas. Um, and there, those groups are purely focused on research, and they're just producing some fantastic uh, work right now. And a lot of it, it actually uh, does account for the constraints that we talked about because they work in the industry setting, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, model size, compute, things like that. Um, there's another whole side, which is the applied research side, which each team may have its own uh, sort of applied ML teams. And then there's a sort of a general applied ML as well. Um, and by the way, the teams at Apple, uh, it, it's not like NLP, computer vision. It's it's very product focused, right? So there's a Siri team there. You have the uh, iPhone camera team. You have Core ML, which is sort of, uh, sort of you know, creating models on devices for many different applications. So uh, within the applied research, you know that this 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 field this subset uh, of research uh, ML at Apple has been around uh, far before the the research one, and even that is starting to open up as well. You know the nature of machine learning is you it's better when you have you know multimodal data sets from all different facets. You know the and the example I always give is that Uber, you know Uber for all their different uh, apps or all their different features, they're not just using traffic data from their rides, they're using data from all their different features, right? Uber Eats, uh, the the traffic, the, the fares, everything. So you really get a bump in performance in whatever you're trying to do when you, tr when you can really put all the different puzzle pieces together. So I think at Apple, um, they, they realized this uh, earlier on, uh, you know, post 2016 and, now that I would say when it comes to ML, uh, there's certainly a lot of collaboration. Um, and you can see that uh, actually every year now when the products come out, I think it started maybe about three years ago, machine learning has become more and more of a focus on all the WWC uh, DC announcements um, as a result of, of, of this collaboration and, and this realization. So um, I, I had a great time working there and seeing that transition happen. Um, and, I, and now I'd say it's as competitive as uh, working at uh, you know Google or Facebook when it comes to machine learning. Well, and and that's a real testament too to the ability of the company to change its internal culture because like Apple, obviously, I mean, w one of the things that differentiates it from a lot of the other fan companies is it was a hardware company first, which meant a lot of trade secrets. You needed that kind of insularity, that secrecy. But then obviously, that's that's at odds with basic machine learning culture, which is all about open source and collaboration. It's it's cool that they were able to make that shift. Yeah, I know absolutely right, um, and I think the other thing that they so they made the shift the the piece that they t continue to take with them is this focus on privacy and following proper regulation. Right. I can't think of a single meeting where I was there, you know, regardless of what ML product they're working on, and I I, I broadly worked on NLP for uh, several different teams, 
But every single meeting, we had someone who was a privacy expert. We had someone who was a, a regulatory expert from day one. So it's baked into anything that you talk about from day one. And I, I think that's the reason why the public as a whole, you know, uh, they 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 use they trust Apple products because it's baked in from the beginning. It's it's not uh, sort of an afterthought that you try to quickly add into the end once all your uh, product is set to go. So I think they've taken that focus and I, this this generalizes to many things, but there there really is an advantage to not being the first mover in something like this. You know, uh, let let all the get, uh, kinks get hashed out, and then make sure you're you're bringing on the components that that really matter to your users, um, and and for and for Apple users and I guess technology users in general, uh, privacy is a big deal. So every single thing that they, that they're creating, uh, it's baked in from the get go. Well, and I think that that's an that's an easy detail to kind of uh, gloss over or miss out on. Especially if you're if you're thinking about a data science career in terms of like what these problems look like in real life, like you can basically file this under "Life is not a Kaggle competition" exhibit two hundred and fifty. Like in, in the case of Apple, privacy matters too. So this is yet another thing in addition to interpretability and things like um, compute cost and so on that you have to factor in, right? When you're when you're building these models, like some models have presumably more privacy. Um, guarantees or, or are more compatible with a privacy priority than others. Absolutely, I, I, I'm not sure if it was you or uh, Russell, but one of you tweeted a couple of days ago. You know, you can't just submit Kaggle notebooks to get a job anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's right. Uh, so it's spot on, and I think every single thing that I did, uh, and actually everyone that that does uh, does ML work at Apple, it's not the performance. Uh, and when I maybe I'll get into details about one of the things, right? So in, when it comes to interpretability. Uh, just showing your softmax values and maybe an attention map, that's not interpretability, right? So um, first of all, that a lot of those approaches can be flawed depending on, on the specific tasks you're worked on, working on. Interpretability here is, you know, things like softmax, very easy to manipulate, uh, especially with adversarial examples. I can make the softmax go up, go down, depending on what I want to see. So uh, a specific thing that I worked on I was actually leveraging a lot of the research by uh, uh, Nicholas Papernot's group at Google. They they do fantastic work when it comes to adversarial training and 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 useful uh, model interpretability and things like that. So when you have uh, a model producing things, don't just show me the softmax probabilities. I want to know, you know, for this this inference point that I put in, how close? Forget about model's output. How close is this point to the 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 training set that I use to train this on? Right. Um, it doesn't have to be just the point compared to the uh, all the training points. Look at the intermediate uh, sort of outputs, the layer outputs within the model too. That's how you can get things like uh, outliers and uh, a lot of adversarial examples. We, you know, something you'll notice: a lot of adversarial examples. There, if you just look at the input points, they may look pretty good, but then as they're going through the model, you'll have the adversarial point be representative of many different classes, right? Uh, which which doesn't really make sense. Uh, so this is the kind of interpretability focus that we're talking about. Uh, and this is just one example. There's, depending on what uh, specific niche you're working on, it, 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 it can be very different. Uh, you know, So for health, if you're doing something with uh, clinical records or something, lot, the interpretability is very different there. You know, They wanna look at uh, you know, what are the different terms you looked at, the weights, log odds, and interpretability, not just at the output stage, but interpretability from the very beginning in the training stage, you know, so setting like uh, non-negative matrix constraints, things like that. So uh, yeah, there's, there's, so, there's so much focus on 
what is useful to the user? You know, what does the user care about? What does the user want to see uh, as opposed to uh, performance? So I think, uh, I, you know, this is not to uh, bash on cattle competitions or anything, but uh, it's not purely just, I, I saw a talk a couple of weeks ago by uh, one of my friends, how Kaggle is different from industry. It, it's, it really is, you know, it's not just about the, uh, the performance. And I think Kaggle could start to bake some of these things in, you know, uh, other, uh, other very important constraints. Uh, but right now I think, you know, uh, the nature of a leaderboard is you need a quantitative thing to compare. Yeah. So a simple metric them, too. Exactly. Right. So I think that makes sense, but, uh, it's certainly very different. I'm sure you know this too. The actual data set is a completely different issue too. That's, uh, it's not pristine, so you're going to spend a lot of time dealing with that. Well, and I think we're, we're now going to migrate. This is a great segue into your latest company, which I think is really exciting. I think it fills a, a very important gap in the, the it's not quite the data science life cycle, but anyway, in, in the life cycle of a data scientist, which is that moment where you need to share your results with the world and get feedback on your projects. And so can you tell us a little bit about so you're this company made with ML, which you're using to help people share their, their projects with the world. Can you explain what the project's all about? Yeah, uh, so maybe I'll start with a little bit of inspiration. It, uh, it was built out of frustration. So um, I would, uh, so Sharpest Minds mentors, uh, my little brother, a lot of friends, you know, we'd, we'd all talk uh, and we'd, we'd try to recommend the best resources when someone asked, hey, you know, I'm trying to learn semantic segmentation. Can you give me the best resources? And you know, I'd go on Google first, I'd search something and I'd see some, uh, you know, clickbaity things. I think towards data science is one of the few places where there's actual uh, content that's, you know, doesn't just have keywords, but the re a lot of Google searches, you'll see they're, they have like very small articles, clickbaity things. So that's not going to work. So then I, I used to think back and I say, okay, you know, I saw something very cool on Twitter. Uh, I think I liked it, you know, a year ago, let me go find that. And that's that really doesn't work. Actually, even uh, Control F on Twitter doesn't work because as the Ajax are loading, you're not going to always be able to find it. Um, and then I started talking to other people, you know, uh, other uh, mentors who who maybe have some lists or things like that. And everyone had different things. They had, I see Google Docs, just like links pasted on that. Uh, I've seen Trello boards. I've seen, um, you know, just like Apple Notes. So all these really great resources were all over the place and everything that we saw on these ephemeral platforms like Twitter and Reddit, people like them and it's maybe popular for a day or two and then it's just gone, yeah. you know, uh, not tagged, not organized and definitely not curated for someone, even someone else to learn a month from now. Someone asked the same question, you're going to have to go dig and find it. So uh, a little frustrated with all this and I, and I wanted to build something a bit more organized. Uh, so I, I started, it was very simple. So I, uh, any resource that I liked, I wanted to be able to take that URL, give credit to the author, you know, link it to their GitHub, and then mention, okay, for this piece of content, these are the tags, and then post it, and then let the community upvote it, basically saying they find it valuable. So we started doing this, uh, and the first feature was just, uh, you know, sort of trending projects. Spending hours on uh, Twitter or Reddit where I'm trying to sort of sift through uh, not just the ML stuff, but all the other social stuff too, to try to find what I should focus on. Let's create one place where, uh, you know, people can just discover what's trending today. So we started with that. And uh, initially, you know, I was adding a lot of the content that I found interesting. But then, uh, just after a week, I would, I'd say uh, we started to have around 12 people who, you know, are, are currently moderators, 
they love adding content. Uh, it's contents that content that they're creating, but content that they're also finding online, both trending and niche work. So we started to build up this uh, this repository, and we started to you know people started upvoting and liking things, and we started seeing this. And this I, I started using this as a tool to reduce the amount of overwhelm I felt. You know, right? Uh, yeah. I would come on, and every day, you know, if you look right now for just for today's upvotes, there's like 70 projects, and nobody has time to do that nor should you do it so the way i use it right now i go through it and i say okay uh, if i like something i'll go ahead and upload it or bookmark bookmark it triage it for later but if i really like something and it has something that i'm working on right now i'll read it so maybe i'll read one or two a day um and that i think is the best use of my time because you don't want to read everything but you don't want to ignore it either so you want to put it store it for later but then the things that really matter to you you know, go ahead and explore that right now because it's it's worth it. Um, so that's how I've been using it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sorry. I just think that's so true. With like the analysis paralysis side of things, where you know you you go on to whatever website it is, uh, blog posts, Kaggle kernels, and, it, and like it's it's also just so hard to know. There's that classic, um, almost like a journalism problem where yeah. you have to you have to trust the person who wrote the blog post to not mm -hmm. be wrong. And, and mm -hmm. that, if you're a beginner, like by definition, you don't have the radar to detect that. So yes. community feedback is just such a, a critical piece of this puzzle. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is a little side tangent, but even if you're a beginner, definitely put your stuff out there and don't, don't be afraid to be wrong because yeah. I learned so much, uh, you know, like five years ago when, uh, when I used to put TensorFlow code out, so many people would correct me and give me snippets like, you know, here's how you should do this or what uh, backprop through time actually means. And I, I learned so much by putting myself out there. Do not be afraid to be wrong because the, the, I think the community as a whole is, is fantastic. You know, people always talk about toxicity and Reddit and stuff, but when the anonymity is taken away, uh, people, are, people are actually very nice. Uh, I think most of the community is, is very uh, receptive towards beginners putting out their work and giving, giving sort of uh, constructive feedback. So Definitely put your work out there. Um, you know, I, I recommend that. Um, now coming back to uh, Made with ML, so you know we had these, we had this trending thing for about a week or two uh, after we launched, and you know we had we had quite a bit of users in the beginning, but I got quite a bit of uh, messages uh, on LinkedIn and emails from who, people who are just starting, and they looked at the front page and they did feel overwhelmed. So they emailed me saying, hey, "I'm looking at the front page, and 90, 95 percent of it." is con like advanced content from this last week. You know, I just learned about Transformers, now I see a synthesizer, like, what's going on? Um, and I, 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 after I looked at it, they were absolutely right. You know, it's all advanced content, industry's moving so quickly. If anyone wants to learn, this isn't helping them in any way. And I, I looked at one of the topics, so for example, the Transformer, right? Uh, and I said, how do I know about this? Well, I learned about self-attention. Before that, I learned about, you know, bound attention. Before that, RNNs. Before that, MLPs. So there's like this trajectory that you that you took to to get to the topic that's cutting edge right now, and for each of the 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 nodes in that trajectory, there are certain contents that I use that were just amazing, and you know they're three four years old, but they're still amazing because they're foundational. The code may be outdated, but the actual text is amazing. So a few examples are, you know, uh, Chris Ola's original blogs for RNNs, or right, yeah, uh, Danny Britz's articles. They're they use TensorFlow, you know, 0 0.1 or 2. That's okay. The actual text is still foundational. So 
Uh, I got together with a few uh, few of my friends and a few of the people that I've met over the last couple of years, around 20 of us, we we each had our own lists of gold mines for each of these topics. And we decided to put them all on Made With ML. And this new feature, which was the easiest thing to build, it's basically just a search feature with some topics exposed. We created this this topics page. And now uh, you can you should probably actually go through it in order. For every single topic, we have the current best tutorials, uh, uh, toolkits, you know, free APIs and, and repos on GitHub and research. But then before all this, on the very top, we have getting started. And this is a, something you go through in order. So it starts with sometimes a, a five minute video, followed by a nice blog post, followed by a nice repository that you should directly implement. And for every topic, we have this. <clears throat> and now the good part is, uh, I guess the best part is as new content, new uh, you know publications come out, new work projects are being added, they automatically update this page uh, as people upvote them and, and as and you know if we see something foundational, we go ahead and add it to the getting started as well. So, uh, it's become sort of this library, and I think you know in terms of traffic, uh, this page has gotten the most traffic because I think most of the industry is learning. You know we have more and more people coming, and I wanted to create a, a resource that's not outdated because I see so many great lists. Uh, that quickly become outdated, um, and it's not really easy to explore. So I wanted to make this, and, I, and actually a lot of the people that helped made those lists, right, uh, on Medium or whatever it is. So we got together, we, we made this place that's constantly updated, uh, and yeah, it was a lot of, it was very easy to put together, and uh, I think a lot of people are using it. It definitely feels, yeah, it definitely feels like the right mechanism for this sort of thing for a field that's so dynamic. Um, and and actually, speaking of, of that dynamism, um, Projects, of course, are a really important tool um, for aspiring data scientists and also for people who are just trying to stay sharp or expand their skills. Um, but what makes a good project, and we were just talking about this before we, we started uh, the episode here, but what makes a good project has just changed so much. Um, and what I'm wondering about is, like, what have you learned about the, the things that make projects look compelling, the things that make projects get a lot of attention, potentially the, intention, the attention of employers, on uh, Made with ML? Yeah, so I think uh, most of my time that I'm spending on it is actually looking at, you know, trying to realize what about this project is so amazing that it, it got a lot of traction. And uh, I, I think actually before talking about that, I just want to quickly say uh, it's really important to work on projects first because, you know, everyone has Kaggle competitions, Coursera courses, and Fast AI on their resumes now. They're, they're all fantastic resources. And everyone should do those. But now the, the bar is higher. It's now the question is, okay, you've taken it, great. What have you done with this, right? Um, more focused your application is for the job you're trying to get, the better, the better your, your odds are. So um, from what I've seen, I, I would say, uh, you know, qualities of a really good project, first of all, they're, they're very niche, right? And when I say niche, everything about it is niche from the data set uh, to the actual modelings, uh, you know, model architectures that are used, to what the actual end-to-end -end demo looks like. So uh, maybe we can start with the data set. And uh, Jeremy, I think you said this uh, maybe a year ago now. You know, you you see a lot of people trying to use that's the same data sets that everyone uses: Titanic, MNIST, uh, you know, things like that. And th that's okay. Those are great to learn from. Literally, you know, implement implementations you see online. Uh, learn from it. Sure, maybe even make a project and put it up. But now, what you need to do is just put that to the side right now. That was your learning project. 
Okay. Now you need to focus on what is what are you what industry do you care about? What job are you trying to get? Your due diligence on what data are they looking at? If it's not a public thing, try to scrape something online. You know, learn beautiful soup. Try to you know we have a web scraping topic on made with ML for this. Try to scrape something online. It doesn't have to be extensive. It could be something small. Um, and now you know there's a lot of uh, if you, especially if working with NLP. There's a lot of uh, you know libraries out there that offer pre-trained models and stuff like that. But your focus shouldn't be performance. It should be about demonstrating that that go-getter attitude, that that focus on the industry, that ability to think properly in that industry. So get that data set. You know if it's available, that's that's good. If you have to scrape a little bit, that's that's even better. Now when it comes to the modeling, you know I, I always say start simple, go complex, but now, even within Start Simple, Go Complex, make sure you're adding in the constraints that the industry cares about. Uh, you know, so if you're applying for a job that uses TensorFlow Lite, uh, you should not be, uh, you know, trying to use ExcelNet and trying to show off uh, how well your model is going to do, right? So try to try to respect uh, to how they're developing in the industry uh, in that or in that subfield. So in the modeling, and then now the the biggest thing, Jeremy, that I that I've seen. When it comes to projects that get a lot of traction, both research and industry, uh, is this final demo piece, and I think it shows so it shows that one you're able to put something in production. It could be like a little uh, flask, or now we're using you know fast API, a uh, little wrapper API wrapper around your model, and then now you've taken it and put a little front end demo. And I I'm starting to see a lot of projects use uh, either TensorFlow JS. Which you know you're gonna have to know a little bit of JavaScript, and they have a wrapper for that too. Uh, but now, the, I think the easier thing is Streamlit, which is you know directly in Python, put together a little front end. Literally takes 10, 20 minutes uh, to put together something, and it's all in Python, and you get this nice uh, JavaScript front end. So I think that's the, that's the piece that I see. They have this explorable piece where nobody has to read any code or even read the blog post sometimes, but they get to like play around with with what you've built. Um, and it you know doesn't have to be extensive. It doesn't take too much time. But having that demo is has been amazing. And I see this in research too. Uh, I was talking to there was this paper on deocclusion that came out this year for CBPR. Uh, I tweeted about it a couple weeks ago. And the, I talked to the authors when they posted it on Made with ML. The, he said the number one reason they think they got so much traction is because they made this fun demo. Uh, and the demo doesn't have to be something that the that the, every user types something custom. It could even be you know three or four preset inputs. Just be able to play with it, play with different inputs, and see that uh, there's uh, there's a certain level of uh, of interactivity and fun to that. And I think this is true on the on the industry hiring side too. When uh, when I was hiring at, at Apple and at the startup after that, whenever someone walked in with projects, uh, it was pretty much. It, it was it was amazing. You know, we had a great conversation. Uh, even if I had like really trivial, hard questions uh, to ask them, sometimes we never get to them because we're 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 just talking about their projects, getting into the nitty gritty. Uh, they have a demo; they're able to walk through their work. Um, you know, and then we talk about uh, the company and the role and things like that. But it's just a great converse. It's a great conversation starter, and you're not going to believe how many people are going to reach out to you because you put this end to end to end thing together. So. I think that's what's changing, and this wasn't the case uh, three, four years ago. Three, four years ago, you could have, uh, you know, used a, a a data set that's already out there. You could have used models that are already out there. Maybe fine tune a little bit, spend a lot of time, and that was good enough. That was that was good enough to get a job. That was good enough to get my job. 
but now the bar is going up because the industry is getting saturated in terms of uh, talent, right? So you need to differentiate yourself. And right now, the differentiating feature is putting together something that's end to end uh, and that has like a, a nice little demo to it. And to be honest, it's, it's a lot of fun too. And uh, we're talking about this to, to sort of facilitate all this because it is more work. There's more and more tooling that's coming out to make this better. Uh, actual experimentation, I suggest people use weights and biases or ML flow if, if you're more traditional. For putting together demo, uh, you know, if you're if you are if you know a little bit of front end, that's great. Put together something with HTML, JavaScript, CSS, or use Streamlit. So, uh, really wrap your project up. Don't don't stop. You're you know you're almost there. You've done all the hard work already. Just push put another day or two because that's how long it takes now. Put another day or two and really wrap it up, polish it, and then and make sure you're sharing it out there. Um, well, I think I think there's like as well this sort of broader theme here that a lot of especially a lot of job seekers tend to get wrong in the early stages where they think of the hiring managers who are going to interview them as if they don't have a limbic system. Like they think of them as that they're all cortex. They're all sort of uh, strategic, polished, logical thinkers. And this isn't a sales job. This is just an evaluation of my technical skills. And in reality, like getting hired is a sales job. You're trying to do some limbic hacking. You're trying to get get somebody's attention the same way Twitter gets you hooked in and, and, and addicted. Uh, you know, you want to give them a toy to play with. You don't want to send them 400 lines of your code in a Jupyter notebook because they've got families and kids and stuff like that, that they want to take care of. Oh, this is spot on. I think this is true for everything, right? It's you yeah. have to play. You have to play to the incentives of the people that you're trying to impress. So. They're looking through so many profiles every day, you know, so show them something interesting, show them something that, you know, uh, makes makes their time worth it. And and it's fun. So absolutely, you I think you should approach everything that way and, and sort of align your incentives. Uh, but yeah, I think projects are the way to go. And now make sure those projects are polished and you have a little end to end demo uh, that you put together. And, and, and I should also mention, too, because I, I know you've been talking mostly about um, the deep learning type projects, but I think it's fair to say what you've just described here, uh, even if you're not using TensorFlow.js, but you're instead just using scikit-learn and Flask, like mm -hmm. this stuff applies whether you're you know, going for a data analytics job, data science, or some deep learning research type role, right? That's absolutely true. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a cutting edge deep, re uh, deep learning researcher or you're working on some really interesting problems as a data analyst, this, this is universal. Uh, absolutely works for, for all different uh, definitions of machine learning engineer or data scientist or business analyst. And, and do you have uh, visualization type projects that you're thinking of including on Made with ML or, or that people could already, like if they have a, I don't know, a really cool um, analytics type dashboarding project, is that the sort, of, the sort of thing that you'd see accommodating on, on the website or? Oh yeah, actually, uh, so in the topics page, there's you know topics that everybody knows about. But in the bottom, we started curating a list of topics that started emerging. Uh, and there are things like, uh, yeah, so there's things like checklists. So people started making checklists of debugging nets. Uh, and there's this really cool one called interactive. So these may not necessarily be ML based, but a lot of them could be dashboards. And people, this is huge. I think people love this. Uh, people started creating interactive uh, widgets and dashboards that you can explore, uh, whether it's models or specific industry use case. But I think I think people love people love playing with uh, visualizations. So if your job entails a lot of uh, you know dashboard creation and sort of putting together all, all information in a, in a nice format uh, for visualization, uh, absolutely, please share that. 
I, I do have to say one more thing. I, I've gotten messages about people asking if my project is good enough to, to share. There, there is no good enough. That's the beauty of this. You share because, first of all, I hope you're working on niche things because that's better. But when you share something, it's not you're not building for applause. If somebody later on comes on and cares about that topic, they can find it because they can search for it. Um, and also share because you get to build your portfolio on the side. So, you know, you should you should you should show that trajectory, your learning path that you've that you've uh, experienced. Not just sort of dump your your top one or two projects. Show that trajectory that you uh, your learning path and all the hard work you're doing. So definitely share anything that you're working on, uh, and the community will give you feedback. And 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 you know, as as you post, you get feedback, you get better, uh, and your next project you actually end up doing it a lot faster and better. So. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely go ahead. Uh, I, I recommend sharing anything. Awesome. Well, um, Goku, thanks so much. I, I think this is just hugely valuable for a lot of people who are at all stages of the, their data science journeys, but especially, you know, if you're looking to build projects to polish up skills uh, for whatever for whatever the reason may be, I just <clears throat> highly, highly recommend this. The, the website, guys, is made with ML. We will link to that. Uh, we're going to write up a, a quick blog post to accompany this podcast, and you can, you'll be able to check it out there. Um, Goku, do you have a? I know you have a Twitter link. I think people should definitely go follow you on Twitter. Can you can you share that link? Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and share that with you guys. Um, so you can follow me at Goku Mohandas, but um, more importantly, you can follow Made with ML on. We're on Twitter and LinkedIn at Made with ML. Uh, we post daily content on you know trending stuff uh, that's trending by you know popular groups and individuals, but also trending for for niche researchers who. Uh, you know, may not have that sort of publicity. Uh, so we, we we try to promote any research that's trending. Um, and uh, yeah, please go ahead and follow us. And and by the way, uh, Made With ML, it's, it's a community effort. It's always going to be 100% free. Um, I'm actually following, there's a company called dev.to and they've completely outsourced the code, uh, open sourced the code. Um, and what I want to do is, you know, after a month or two, once it's become stable, I'm going to outsource the entire thing on GitHub and you know, a few of the private environment variables will have that be in a you know dot uh, n file. But the rest of it, we're going to completely open. And you know, it just, it's it's only been a month and a half, and my time that I spent on the website in terms of maintaining it has gone down from you know two three hours a day to just five ten minutes now. So eventually, I want to be completely hands off and just let the community run this, one hundred percent free. And uh, every everything that we add is going to be beneficial to people that. Uh, are, are wanting to learn ML and improve uh, what they know. Well, it's a, a beautiful initiative and a great open source contribution to a very open source minded field. So really, uh, really like that. I, I think anybody out there, definitely go check that out. Um, and Goku, thanks so much for making the time. It's a great chat. Thank you, Jeremy. Had a great time.